0: Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have the 2022 IBJJF Nogi World Middle and Absolute Champion, Elizabeth Clay. Elizabeth is a professional jiu jitsu athlete as well as a black belt under Osvaldo Moisinho, otherwise known as Cachino, and Samir Chantre, who represents the Aries BJJ Association. A prodigy at the age of 16, The then-Alaska-based athlete conquered the ADCC West Coast Trials in 2017. Elizabeth continued her rise to the top of the grappling ladder during the years that followed, conquering numerous important titles on the IBJJF amateur circuit, while also having successful runs as a professional in events such as Who's Number One, Fight to Win, Subversive, and many more. Just a reminder please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Please leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Yes, less than a dollar. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash foreverwhitebelt forward slash subscribe. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at Forever White Belt. And check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever-white-belt. Check us out on YouTube now at Forever White Belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Elizabeth Clay. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So one thing I need to uh, get off my chest is I think we both have the same birthday, which is June 10th, right? Yeah. All right. So I guess we just became best friends. Yeah, right there. There you go. (laughs) So you are 22 years old, right? Yeah, 22. So you are a black belt under Cushinho. Is that correct? Yes.
1: I have my black belt under Cushinho and Sumir Chantre.
0: They represent Aries BJJ Association. Yes. And what it looked like your your history, your geographical history, if you will, it's kind of all over the place. I see Modesto. I see Alaska. I see all these different things. Can you sort of walk me through like all these different places that you were like in your youth and everything too?
1: Yeah. So I started training in Alaska at a, a smaller gym. I was there for about four years. Stuff happened, whatever, didn't end up working out. So I I ended up going and trying out a gym that was a couple hours away from me in another town in Anchorage that ended up being an Aries affiliate and just kind of mm-hmm. tried it out there and really liked the training. And this was in 2016. So did the training there, you know, did these trials, competed, same, same. So that's how I became Aries, which kind of just honestly by accident, you know, I was a couple mm-hmm. hours away for a dental appointment, actually. And I was like, oh, I'll just go in this gym, whatever, just do a class or so. Because I was planning on moving out of state to find better training and kind of tried it out. And I was like, no, I like the training here. And so that was still in Alaska, but in a different town. So trained there. And then in 2018, my, at the time, professor Jordan Contra was telling me basically, he's like, Hey, I want you to go down to Modesto to train with Samir and Kishinio, basically at the headquarters to train for worlds. And so I went down there to kind of train for worlds. And while I was down there, I was like, well, I feel like there's, Pieces kind of that I'm missing in my game that I feel like they would be better suited to help me with, which Jordan, my professor at the time, agreed with me. He just because styles were very different and stylistically what I needed at that point in time and to work on, they had more knowledge as far as that went, and also just better training partners to be able to work on that type of stuff. So I went down there in 2018. This is right after Worlds. So we're in like June of 2018, and I was good training down there, but back up in Alaska, back home. My brother also trains. Hmm. And he was young enough at the time that he couldn't drive. And basically I moved back up to Alaska to be able to take him to and from training because he wasn't getting training in. So I moved back up in beginning of 2019. But my thought process was never to stay back up in Alaska. And, you know, I I told Jordan that when I came back, basically, I'm here just to help with my family, but I'm not staying here. Just heads up, you know, I was teaching while I was there, everything like that. But I just wanted it to be, you know, just so you know, this isn't a a permanent thing. Mm -hmm. And I was already looking at moving back down to California, because Casino and Samir were both in Modesto Mm -hmm. at the time. And then I don't remember when exactly, I believe it was around when about mid 2019, Casino actually moved over to Arizona. So they went from being in the same gym to because moved to Arizona. So there are two different gyms, both still Aries. And basically when the pandemic happened, I kind of ended up, I think as a lot of people did, you know, our training was very all over the place. You know, a lot of us were training at gyms we didn't normally train at or train out before the pandemic. And so I basically in 2020 flew down to Texas to be able to go train because we had some affiliates over there, all over the place. And I don't think <laughs> I'm the only one. If you ask a lot of the athletes, I feel like a lot of the athletes were kind of bouncing all around. And I didn't even first go to an affiliate. I went down there. I was with one of my friends training at his gym for a couple weeks and then went over to Dallas because that's where all the fight twins were. And that's where we have an affiliate. And I was there for probably a good, you know, Two, two three months in 2020 and then went over to train because i was supposed to be with samir for a little bit just to kind of say hi as you do and i went over there ended up staying you know about a year while trying working stuff out to get to, over to arizona which was always the the goal plan was to be in arizona training with casinio mm. so while there was bouncing around i was always still in contact with the same people i was still getting coached even when i was in modesto i was still getting coached at tournaments by casinio if Samir wasn't there, just because everything still works together, even though it was different locations, they're still both the heads of the entire
0: association. Wow. I was going to ask how you maneuvered through 2020, because every practitioner sort of has a very unique story, and but similar in that, in that sort of aspect. You're lucky that you had these uh, affiliates and friends to go to in all these different places. That's interesting Definitely. that the final destination was Arizona. I thought you were going to end up in Modesto right now. So you're in Arizona right now, correct?
1: Yeah, I'm in Arizona right
0: now. It's great jujitsu state, by the way. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. where in Arizona are you? Yeah, it
1: is. Uh, I'm here in Goodyear. It's uh, it right outside of Phoenix.
0: Do you cross train much?
1: Uh, about once a week. I don't cross train a crazy amount, but about once a week, I'll head over to one of the soul fighters that's here and mm-hmm. kind of number the Aries guys, go over there and train.
0: How did you learn to tie your belt?
1: I just coach telling me how, I guess. And I've tied it the same way since I was, you know, probably 12.
0: The standard sort of belt tie or, or what, whatever that means?
1: It's a standard for me, but I think if you ask different people, different people have like the weird like wraparound that they'll do or a different way. Yeah. Cause I had somebody tell me they're like, you tie your belt different. And I was like, they're like, it seems to stay tied better. I was like, I don't know. It's the only way I've tied it. You always get people, I feel like they're purple belt, they'll go through this weird phase where they like want to tie their belt different. And I never right. went through it because I didn't care. <laughs> I was like, if it, if it ain't broke, why well, fix it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's another thing too is like, people, a lot of people associate you with only nogi. So it's interesting. I've heard you say before that you do, I guess, the majority of your training in GI, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty funny because so I didn't, I used to hate Nogi, like despise Nogi, just because I think a lot of people, if you ask a lot of people that don't do Nogi, they're uncomfortable in it because they don't train it a lot. And of course, you're going to be uncomfortable because it's weird. It's different. But I didn't start training Nogi seriously until like six to eight months before that first ADCC trials I did.
0: What? <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's so crazy because it seems so hand in glove for you. Like, pardon the pun, uh, mm-hmm. Nogi does, and and so many of your finishes. You know, I was looking at the your percentages of your finishes and everything too. So many of the majority of your finishes are like uh, sort of the below the waist kind of stuff. The, your top three are straight ankle locks, toe holds, outside heel hooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: baby. but I think the majority <laughs> of the reason is is just because it's it's there, and I think more so it's because for a while there, just like the knowledge and the defense on leg locks themselves were kind of behind. And so it was just mm-hmm. an easier thing for me to get. And if you let this last nogi pans, I didn't get a single foot lock. It was all jokes.
0: Can you tell me about uh, the academy itself where you're training? What's unique about the academy?
1: I, I think Yashino is just unique, you know, how just the the energy and, and that type of stuff that you have. I think that's more what makes it unique.
0: Have you taught like women's classes?
1: I'm going to be honest. Those aren't my favorite things because I look at it the same way. I think, especially because I grew up with brothers, I look at it a different way. Uh Uh, When you have like the women's only stuff I look at, I had six brothers. What if they decided to do like a men's only thing? The women would be up in arms if there was men's only. And the thing is that I think you have this whole thing of like, you want equality and and blah, blah, blah. blah. But if you wanted equality, then in the same sense, the men would have the same thing. I would be pissed at that because I would lose 90 more than nine. I would lose... Like 98% of my training right there. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. have basically no training if they made men's only training. And I mm-hmm. understand the goal behind it, right? It's to bring more women in. It's that whole thing. But on a a base level, I just don't agree with it.
0: Anecdotally from my experience too is that women who have who cross-train, if you will, with genders with men are just better. Call me biased. But I, I respect that, you know, some women just only want to train with women for whatever your reason may be.
1: Yeah, I my, my biggest argument that I come in with that is that a lot of the women that only want to train with other women is the argument is that they don't feel comfortable training with men. However, most of those women are in jujitsu for self defense. Then at that point, it doesn't make sense. Because in self defense, most of the time, who are you worried about attacking you, though? It's not another female, you're mm-hmm. mostly worried about another man attacking you. And from anybody that trains with men and women, you move differently. Mm hmm. Men move like inherently, just physically, your bodies are built different. And in that way, even mentally, how a guy approaches something is usually different than how a girl does. Or when you go to push their leg, women generally have more flexible hips, et cetera, et cetera. If you're wanting, if you're in it for self-defense reason, it makes even less sense. It would make more sense if your female competitors wanted it because you're competing against women. Do I think you're right in that way approaching it? No, but I can understand your reasoning behind it. But most of your women that only want to do women's only are your ones that are in it for self-defense, which is completely backwards, in my
0: opinion. So touching on that, and I want to talk to you about this. I want to get your thoughts on these weekend women's self-defense classes. And they may include things like kicking the groin and gouging the eyes kind of stuff. And I'm oversimplifying, but I want to get your thoughts on, on those type of things.
1: If you're using it as an introductory into it, that's one thing. But if you use this as a selling point to now you're going to be able to defend yourself, you're honestly making it worse because then you're giving these women a sense of false self-confidence. And what's going to end up happening is they're going to feel more comfortable than they should when something happens or if something happens. And if anything, you're going to end up putting yourself in a more dangerous scenario because you're going to have this false sense of confidence. And the fact that, oh, I know what to do because I spent two days doing something that's not going to do anything. And if anything, you're going to feel too comfortable and then you're going to put yourself in a more dangerous spot. So I think it depends on how you approach it. If you start the weekend by this as an introductory to see if you actually wanted to then find something, not even just Jiu Jitsu, but a martial art or, or something for self-defense, then I don't have an issue with it. However, I if you're marketing this as a, hey, after these two weeks, you'll be able to defend yourself you're lying to people and you're putting them in more danger than anything.
0: I know in the past that I've heard you say that you've taught kids classes and you have a lot of experience with that. How do you feel about parents that, or have you experienced that parents that are like overly involved during class?
1: So I think there's this fine line and I definitely experienced it. During the class, you need to basically what I'll tell the, and I'll, I'll kind of, if I have a new parent or a parent that I'm having, kind of problems with, you know, to start I'll kind of just say something in general to the class and then move on from there if I need to do more. But generally, my biggest thing is kind of communicating when you're on the mat. It should be a student and, you know, professor, coach, whatever, however you want to call it, relationship. If that kid is always looking first at mom or dad and then looking at back at me when I say something to get it, you're disrupting it. When we're on the mat, I should be the first person you look for. You shouldn't ever look over at mom or dad. Unless, of course, there's an issue, there's something there, but that's a totally different topic. That's a totally different thing. I should be the first person you look forward to when we're on the mat. It shouldn't be mom, dad, and then coach. Coach should be first when you're on the mat. And I think I think that this goes across to any sport. The coach should be the first person when you're on the mat that you look for, and the problem you run into is when parents get overly involved in. There's a way to be very involved and to be healthy, but you're going to run into even as simple as let's say we're at a competition and I'm coaching. If you don't have that relationship, the kid isn't going to listen to me first. They're going to look at mom and dad first, even when I say something Hmm. and you don't want that. If that's how you put them in a class for a reason, you should trust the coach when you put them in a class. If you don't trust that coach, you need to take them somewhere else. I'll tell parents that I'll be like, Hey, if you don't like how I coach, if you don't agree with how I approach it, or you just don't think I'm a great fit for your kid. That's okay. Cause every kid, every person has a different thing, but you need to trust whatever coach you put them in. If you don't trust them, that's a totally different thing. Then you you shouldn't have them there. You shouldn't Mm -hmm. have your kid in something where you don't trust their coach, but you need to have it where the kid looks first to the coach. Parents supporting is different than being overly involved. You shouldn't be off on the side coaching. The kids should not be over there looking at you when they're doing something. They should be looking towards me or something, or it's, it shouldn't be like, oh, well, what's my mom or dad saying? Are, am I doing the right thing? Parent probably, even if they do jujitsu, you don't, you're breaking that kind of trust. It would be the same thing. Like when you have one parent that oversteps the other, you shouldn't have that. They shouldn't, if mom is saying something, they shouldn't look immediately towards dad, right? Or or vice versa. And it, it's very similar that when we're on the mat, it's the same thing. It should be directly towards whoever is coaching first. And then, and parents supporting them all for that. Kid wants to go compete, great support them kid wants to train, you know, seven days a week, great support them, but you shouldn't be the one being like, no, you're going to do this. No, you're going to do that. Well, if you want to do that, then I'm going to no. They said they want to do it. You let them do it and you support them with it. But that's that.
0: How do you deal with uh, kids who are quote unquote, disrupting class problematic?
1: I think honestly, with most kids that I found, you obviously run into your ones that it's different. With most kids, if you explain the fact, I don't think that they stop and think, hey, I'm messing up my training partner stuff as well. Normally, just they're just thinking, well, if I can get it still, or I don't care about my training, I'll tell them, I'm like, hey, you realize like you're being a bad training partner, you're being noisy in class, you're doing any of that. Like, You're not ruining just your training. You're messing up your training partners, and maybe you're messing up that other kids. Maybe you don't care that you're not getting better, or you think you'll get better without that. Even doing that, you'll think you'll be good enough. You're messing up your training partners. You want to mess up your friends training like that. Like, that's not really fair. How would you like it if you had something you really cared about and someone else was messing it up where you couldn't do it, where you weren't getting better? And a lot of times that in itself, like not you're going to say it once and it's going to magically fix it. But usually just having it and stopping and putting things into perspective for kids I found generally helps better than just sitting there and kind of being like, hey, be quiet that doesn't necessarily work because in their head, you're just being a kind of a jerk or whatever. They're not, it's not a big deal what they're doing or whatever. I feel like when you put things into perspective in general with kids, not just in Jiu Jitsu, they generally tend to do it better because they actually understand it.
0: Any sort of tips or any sort of aha moments in terms of teaching kids that you've had that you can share?
1: Honestly, everybody's going to have their own thing, how they like to run it. I think I'll go back to that same thing. I think the biggest thing is putting things into perspective for the kids. A lot of people treat kids like they're stupid. Kids aren't stupid. You know, if you treat them like little adults, you might have to kind of explain things like, hey, this is why we do this. But generally, if they understand, I think this is, you talk to any parent for the most part, they'll understand. If you tell them, hey, we do this because of this, or this will help that, for the most part, it'll be way easier to get them to do stuff, way easier to get them on there than anything else. Instead of just telling them what to do, you know, you don't have to sit there and take 15 minutes to explain it, but you know, Hey, there's a reason why we do this. Like, I'm not just making you do it. Hey, I get the warm ups suck. Right. But there's a reason why we do them. I, I don't think hardly anyone likes doing the ups. I think that's like, like, for the most part, kids hating doing that stuff. But the thing is like, there's a reason why we do it. I'm not just making you do it because I think it's funny to see you hate something. Right. Like mm. there's a reason behind it. And I think generally mm. that helps with kids,
0: Okay. Well, speaking of warmups, ups, warm ups for adults and things like that, you're touching on a, on a touchy jujitsu subject. Your idea of like ideal warm ups, are, are you the proponent of the typical sort of running in circles, shrimping up and down the mats, or, or is any sort of special tweaks or anything like that you would uh, feel would be ideal?
1: If I'm running a class, I'll probably have them run or stuff like that. But, you know, I, I think one big thing that people need to think about is some people have knee injuries and stuff like that. Like, I don't run. I'm not running. My knees are jacked. My ankles are jacked. And just because you can't run doesn't mean you can't do the other aspects of it. If I'm teaching regularly, I'm going to be honest, I don't really have people run. We'll do the mat warm ups just to get a little bit warm. And then we'll jump into, into the technique because that's the, the most important thing. But I don't want people necessarily being super cold when they're doing it. Now, do I? personally always do that no but i think there's a difference between you know when you're asking an athlete what they personally do versus how running a class is different
0: mm-hmm. so speaking of the athlete you and your knees was that from gymnastics as a kid or, or just a combination of gymnastics and jujitsu
1: i think it's just a combination and just the amount of miles put on it just while i'm still young there's a lot of mileage you know I, i've torn basically everything in my entire body so wow
0: so, I know that you're not big on like traditional sort of powerlifting just due to those type of things. Uh, are you still big into sort of kettlebells? And what are you doing in terms of that strength conditioning?
1: So, I used to actually do way more traditional type powerlifting just to get stronger, but I felt like I got really strong. However, I noticed it wasn't necessarily applicable when it actually came to training. And I could feel like I'm really strong, but when it comes to actually doing something, you're very strong when everything's in line and everything's like this perfect. Very, I pick this up, I put it down in this exact motion when everything is perfect because that's how you train. And if you know anything about traditional powerlifting, it's it's very much that. And I found that I was getting really strong, but I didn't see the results when I was training as much as I wanted to. Like I kind of felt like I hit a, a stalemate. It was more way more wear and tear on my knees. Like I would go and I would whenever I would, I would squat over like 200 or 215, my mm-hmm. knees would be fine while I was doing it. But the next day I was in so much pain. Same thing, deadlifting. I'd start literally just from having injuries. My the bone in my knee would start coming out when I was deadlifting over a certain amount of weight. Mm. And I'm going to power lift and power lift heavy. So I kind of just started working some more, you know, kettlebell stuff. And not that I still don't lift heavy. I lift as heavy as I can while keeping the form correct and still in high rep. My repetition is generally between anywhere from 15 to 20 Mm. and doing about five sets of those.
0: And then let's talk about recovery. I know you're a big proponent of ice baths. What's your protocol for your ice baths, like a duration of time? And uh, what else are you doing for recovery?
1: ice baths I don't do for a super long time. I think some people like to do like crazy long ones. I think like Mm -hmm. two to three minutes is good. I think ice packs are the, are the best, but I Mm. think if you talk to any athlete, you know, we're always the best at giving advice. (laughs) I think we're (laughs) the worst at taking it. Um, Epsom salt baths are also great
0: for muscles too. I think you're the first person I've heard say that in a long time.
1: Oh really? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Not too many people are talking about Epsom baths anymore, but they still serve a purpose. I think. (laughs)
1: I like taking baths anyway. And then if I'm just sore, it's just kind of one of those things that I'm like, let's say I don't want to go through the whole ice bath. Like I just don't feel like putting myself through even more misery. And Epsom salt baths always good. You know, throw mm-hmm. that more for muscles, not like if you have an injury that's different, because the heat can you have to worry about inflammation, depending on what type of injury it is, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But for like muscle soreness, I think it's it's really good.
0: Hot tubs and saunas are so great too. But as you mentioned, if inflammation type of things you need to, I don't know, maybe vacillate back and forth between hot and cold. Do you play with hot tub or saunas? Yeah, I generally,
1: all? if I have an actual injury, not really. Like if it's mm. like a brand new injury, I generally try to stay away from heat in general. Unless of course, let's say it's super tight. So I want to do it. But then I'm going to put ice on it immediately after like, I'm not going to let it cool down at all. I'll Literally, like, let's say I take a hot after salt bath, but like, I just hurt my knee as soon as I get out, I'm literally going to towel dry and I'm going to put ice on it before I even do anything else.
0: Improving your mobility and recovery will only benefit your BJJ. And as such, we highly recommend you try Yoga for BJJ at yogaforbjj.net. Use our code FWB, all uppercase FWB to get 20% off your subscription, yogaforbjj.net. What makes a great jujitsu student?
1: Showing up consistently, I think, and you know, just kind of I hate to say it, but like you kind of go through the motions, right? You're learning, you take in what they're saying when they're teaching it, try and do it. But I think the biggest thing for growth is just, just being there consistently.
0: I want to talk about the belt system with you. If you could redefine the belt system, how would you?
1: So kids can all, they can go up to purple. You don't have to go straight to, to blue. You can go Mm -hmm. straight to purple. The problem is if you put a kid straight to purple, they're not going to have anyone to compete against. I think that the time duration on it can kind of suck. If anything else, I think that's the biggest thing. But at the end of the day, the thing is I had to spend, you know, longer at purple and then wait a little bit at brown just to get to get promoted again. At the end of the day, every your goal is black belt and having a couple more years before you hit black belt isn't really gonna hurt you. You're just gonna have that much more experience by the time you actually hit black belt.
0: Hmm.
1: And you can get your black belt by nineteen
0: we see someone like a Colabate right now, who's a, a purple belt, who is you know out there crushing black belts on the regular.
1: I think that's just the level in itself growing. And I think that's going to constantly be a thing because the thing is, don't get me wrong, Cole's very good and everything. I think I was in a similar situation, but it's not like you still win absolutely everything, even as a purple belt, just because there's other good purple belts. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that he's there to is it sometimes a little annoying that you're there? You feel like you're being held back, whatever. When you're in it, it kind of sucks. But when you look back on it, it's really, it, it all kind of works out. At least for me, it did.
0: Yeah. I've heard people say before, like maybe the idea of a like a kid's black belt or, or a kid's, you know, a purple belt or, or a kid's brown belt or a kid's to sort of designate these different yeah, things. And then...
1: But I think then you're going to run into problems that you're going to have somebody that thinks their kid is so good and they're not. And then you're going to run into the same issue where it's being watered down. Are some of the kids actually that good? Mm -hmm. Yes. However, for the most part, if you look at it, everybody thinks their kid's that good. Mm
0: -hmm. So how do Mm -hmm. you
1: then go about and say who is allowed to do it and who's not to make sure it isn't then being watered down? Eventually getting into the problems of like, you know, you get kids in karate, they're getting their black belt at eight years old. How do you Mm -hmm. not then kind of run into a similar problem there if people are just allowed to to promote before?
0: And then for people also say that perhaps we need like a professional belt too, like system, you know what I mean? Where there's some designation. Uh,
1: I don't think necessarily you have the adults. That's what the adult division is for. And in the colored belts, it's different in the colored belts. You're still amateur. Even if you're good, you're still amateur. Mm -hmm. A lot of your professional, let's say professional MMA fighters. Most of them had amateur fights still because you need that thing. Did every person they were fighting as an amateur, then make it professional and even make it, Okay, they went professional, but did they actually make it, you know, UFC, one championship? No, but that's how you have it. You have to have a a stepping stone and the adult black belt is the professional division.
0: It seems like we do have like an unspoken sort of professional division now. I mean, if you're going to like a who's number one or or a um, ADCC or, or something at that point, you're in a professional league. It's not IBJJF okay. or something like that. So it's, it's like this unspoken sort of professional league now or designation.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, okay. I mean, if you look at the, even the IBJJF, how they pull it is... Heel hooks are legal for brown and black belt adults Mm -hmm. because that's their idea of the professional because they Mm -hmm. don't let the masters have it because they're not professional. So you don't need that. They also don't let before brown belt do it because you're still a colored belt. And yes, brown belt is still the colored belt. However, generally the rules are similar so that you get ready to then compete as the black belt adult.
0: Tell us about like the evolution of your game and where do you want it to go?
1: I think it's like anything, you know, you just kind of start working on the little stuff. And then all of a sudden you look back and, and it's changed a bunch at all. Maybe it's just me. I kind of just start working. and I'm like, eh, I want to work this type of passing. Like I want to add this specific thing in right now. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of do that for a little bit. And then you look back and you're like, oh, it kind of changed. But I don't, I don't think my game has ever changed entirely. If you look even back at it, it matches with me as a blue belt. You can see it's very, it's obviously progressed and it's grown. And however, you can definitely see this. It's the same style.
0: What was really interesting to see is that I don't think I've seen so many gogo plata finishes at the uh, professional level. You know what I mean? I'm like, where the hell did this come from? And on your body type too, I wouldn't have like associated that type of finish with you. Was that one of those things that all of a sudden did just resonated with you and then you just like worked on or tweaked or what?
1: I did almost plata's and then I just kind of started when people would turn into you from it. It just kind of leads mm-hmm. straight into it. It, it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily like something that I wanted. It was just kind of one of those things that you know, you're already in a good position. You already have the submission, but how they're defending it is turning into it. And I think a lot of people will hit the triangle off of that. I have some scar tissue in my calf from doing a triangle back when I was younger. I split the entire calf muscle. Triangles aren't my favorite because It creates a little bit of pain. It puts a little bit of pressure on that scar tissue and I, I split the entire belly of the muscle. So I don't love doing triangles a lot. If you see, I don't do a ton of triangles anymore. So that, um, that's basically what it was.
0: What do you wish you were better at?
1: I don't, I feel like there's always stuff I'm constantly sitting there working on. So I, I don't think there's one thing I could be like, I was just, if this one thing happened, like it would, it would change everything at all. Hmm. I don't think there's one thing that I would be like, this would change everything. Like, passing, I do not passing, top,
0: is. something on bottom or nothing, huh? you all around?
1: No, I like my passing. I, li- I like playing top.
0: Yeah. You got good passing. Great am I passing.
1: not? Yeah. I was like, am, am I not working on it? <laughs> no, I think I'm always working on it, but I can say the same thing. I'm still always working on my leg locks. I'm still working on the stuff that I do every day. I'd say maybe takedowns, but even at that point, like if I want to play takedowns, I don't think I'm necessarily bad at them. I just, sometimes I still want to do it. I I don't think I could just pick like one thing and be like, this is what I want, you know?
0: Mm Can you tell me a time, uh, something in your jiu journey where you experienced something or learned something that like totally was like an aha moment or changed your game or that you incorporated into your game? You're like, oh, this tweak totally fixed that or made everything better.
1: I feel like it's like an mm-hmm. accumulative of so many. I, I can't. There's so many times I could, okay, I used to play on Wapata as a blue belt. I still play on but I would play it a different way. I would play it the very traditional, I would say more like Clark Gracie style, right? Where you like come across mm-hmm. to the side to finish the Wapata. And if you haven't noticed, I'm kind of short. And a lot of the girls that I fight are, are significantly taller than I am. Mm-hmm. And I just kept getting it girls and they would just step over my head, right? And you do the Clark Gracie style, right? You just stick your arm up to, you know, stop the hip, right? Mm-hmm. Super easy. Not when your arms are short and then when they're hitting, it's basically your hand hitting and they would get up so high that sometimes I couldn't even touch the hip. So I would have people step over and I would have to constantly re-roll. And it was basically, um, I remember one of the worlds when I was down there training in in Modesto, this happened. And basically, Cascino, when I came back, literally showed me this, just a little grip switch, right? Changing the grip, grab the back of the collar, grab inside the collar. Pretty simple, not a big deal and i still use that to this day and i I use a kind of a variation on it that i've altered a little bit um Mm. for even to work with nogi if you notice i Uh. grip the back of the the shoulder when i grab it and i'll kind of come under sometimes if i need to and that's kind of altered my entire omoplata game just from right there and i played them before i can find finishes from when i was like 15 or even younger doing omoplatas. so i played omoplatas before However, just that little grip switch, it, it fixed a huge problem that I was having. And it kind of led into the whole thing because that grip switch changed to how I like to play more on my hip. When I, even when I play Plata is very similar to Cachino, if you look at it, I play more on that hip, but that also opens up, you know, the go-go plata there because I'm on the hip and they turn in. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've had so many of those little things that happen that I think that's the only one I can think of right now. I can't, I can't think mm-hmm. of another one that I was like right here, changed it, you know?
0: Trial by fire. Yeah. So, are you much of a like an instructional <laughs> watcher? And if so, um, which ones have or which one has resonated with you the most?
1: I barely watch jujitsu, honestly. I watch some of the major competitions sometimes, uh, but usually, even then, I'm watching for like, ah, I'll watch this match or, or I'll even go back afterwards and kind of skip through it. I'm mm-hmm. not a huge instructional watcher. Not, I think you get pe- different people. Like, some people love studying jujitsu. They love watching it. They love breaking every little thing down. I think different people just learn different ways Mm -hmm. and my ADHD could never, I could Mm -hmm. never just sit there and and study it. I'd start zoning out and getting bored and stuff. I'll always joke. I'll be like, if there's something good, someone else will watch it and they'll bring it in and then I'll look at it once. And then I'll see if I want to play with it or not. I was like, but I'm not sitting there and watching through hours and hours and hours of, of instructional just to find the one thing that I like. But I think some people learn a lot that way. And that's, you know, if you can learn that way, that's great. I just, I personally don't.
0: Yeah, I wish I could sit through those Danaher instructionals, but that verbosity is like really <laughs> difficult for me to, you know, as a fellow Gemini, difficult to uh, cling on to. I need some really quick points.
1: Even then at that point, I, I don't even watch like, you know how you'll have like the really short videos. I think it's my ADHD. I'm like, I don't care to see this. I want to go train <laughs> if I'm going to do that.
0: That is amazing on the professional level. What a coin flip it is. How many of you just don't, you know, do I I would understand it because you're knee deep in jujitsu all the time. So it's maybe the last thing that you want to do, you know, in the evening or something.
1: I don't even follow accounts. Like the only jujitsu people I follow are my friends. And even then like I have a number of my friends that I don't even follow. Cause so I'm like, I just don't want to see you on my page. And I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> but most of what you post is that. And I just don't want to see it on my page. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't follow any of the major organizations. I don't follow any of like the news outlets. Any, of I'm like, I don't need to see that on my page constantly.
0: Can you tell me a time that you considered or wanted to quit and why?
1: Um, I could say the only time that I considered is I had a heart problem. Well, I still have the heart problem. Obviously it doesn't just go away, but I didn't know what it was. And I've been dealing with it for like six months. It was pretty bad. Like I was getting dizzy and training. I was almost passing out. Wow. It's affecting me physically. And I was competing while I still had this going on. And the the hardest thing was we didn't know what it was. So the thing is I had gone in, I'd had blood testing done. I'd had like everything you could think of. I was going in and having it done and like nothing was coming back. Everything, like my blood work was not even just good. Like everything was perfect. Like you couldn't ask for better thing. And i like, I don't know what's going on with you basically. And you know, I would go and I would train and I would do situational and I would stand up and I would have to like, we had a pole in the middle of the training and I'd have to lean against it. Cause I would basically almost pass out. And I basically, I didn't tell my coach about it. And nothing, so I was like, he's going to tell me to stop training if I tell him. So didn't tell him. And basically kept doing this from February, March, February until worlds. And then at worlds, I went competed, had the first match, and felt okay, but not good. Won the match, came out the next one. And while I ended up, I think I lost on decision or something something like that. But while like I was competing, I literally remember being like, I can't, I couldn't feel my arms. And it wasn't like a, a fatigue, can't feel your arms. You can tell a difference. There's a, there's a difference between like, I'm fatigued. I can't feel my arms and this. And went in, I was literally like completely tunneled in to barely see anything. Everything was like blacking out. That happened. I came down and I sit down, sat down and I was like, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And my coach is there and he's like, no, 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 He's like, you're just tired. I was like, I was like, no, I was, like, it's not my lungs. I was like, something's wrong I was like I don't know what it is but something's wrong I was like this isn't wow. I was like I can't feel my arms I can't I was like and this isn't adrenaline this isn't I grip too tight this isn't I was like I know been an athlete plenty long I, I can feel the difference it's not this and I was signed up I think for another competition after that I, I told my mom I was like I'll do this last one just because I'm signed up by sponsors I, people that have paid to help me get there. I was like, I'll compete this last one. And then like, I'm done. Like, I'm, I'm not going to keep competing if I'm not able to perform optimally. And it wasn't just like, oh, you lost the competition or you've had a hard year, whatever. There was something wrong and I didn't know what it was. It would be different if it was like, hey, you're just having a rough year. Sucks to suck. Not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right. Or it was something that I knew what it was. Like I had injuries before you work on it, you strengthen it, whatever. Not a big deal. Had no idea what it was, and I was like, "I'm gonna do this competition, and like, I'm done." Ended up figuring out what it was, and and being able to work on it, and kept competing. I didn't quit at all. That was actually the exact same year that I won. I got my brown belt that year, and less than two weeks later, I won double gold at Nogi World. And less wow. than six months prior, I was having the heart problem, and I was like, "I'm done." Like, I, there's something wrong with me, and we, we have no idea what it is. That's honestly, that's like the only time I was like, that's it. I'm done. I quit. But it was more so like there was something wrong and there was, and I had no idea what it was and I couldn't fix it. It wasn't just because I was like, oh, I'm sad. It was like, I'd I'd been competing the whole year and I'd been dealing with this thing and it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. Uh Like I'd competed pans. I got sick while I was fighting pans, got dizzy, got went. I threw up while I was going and never thrown up with that. I was like, what is wrong with me? Uh worlds, worlds was worse but it was crazy. You, you can go, if you go back and look at the interview when I won noki Worlds, I literally talked about it. I was like, I almost quit six months earlier because I was having health problems. Wow.
0: Well, you know, I was about to ask you too, what's the worst injury you've had? <laughs> it sounds like, sounds like we nailed it right there. huh?
1: Honestly, I don't know. Cause when I was younger, I had my shoulder was, they did an x-ray on it and it was hollow. They didn't know if it was cancer what? or just hollowed out or, or what. Wow. <laughs> I, I always thought I was the easy child till I started like sitting and thinking about it. And I like talked to my mom and I was like, I stressed you out a lot, didn't I? Because i like, I didn't stop training. My entire shoulder was hollow. And it was one of those that, like, if I fell wrong on it, like it was going to crack and shatter. And like, at that point, your career is done. Like, there's nothing they can do for that. You know they'll do a bone marrow transplant maybe, but even then when you, when you crack the the head of your shoulder like you can't really do much from there, especially because it was already mm-hmm. hollowed. And I was like, I'm an easy kid, right, mom? And then I sat and thought about it, and I was like, I was not. I was so because I literally got that done, had no mm-hmm. idea if it was cancer or not, and obviously they won't know because I'm not going to do a biopsy because you don't want to open it up if it is cancer. True. And I literally went to training that night. I was like, I'm going to train. It's like okay. She's like, it's your choice. It wasn't like I was just training jujitsu. I was still training judo. And like, I was still getting thrown. Everything is like, is like normal, right? I was still doing all of it. And even while like it ended up not being cancer, I ended up being fine. My shoulder was still hollow. And that in and of itself is like a huge risk. Like you're not supposed to be doing stuff with it. That poor surgeon, he he saw saw a little bit of me.
0: And here all along, like we see you and we see this superhuman athlete not that you're not i mean you're obviously superhuman and obviously you're some kind of weird mutant as well i think you're some kind of x ex, x-man or something <laughs> like that
1: it's, you don't see the behind the scenes of everything there's of so everything. much that goes on and i, I don't i don't think i'm the, i'm not the only athlete like i think most people go through that and everyone you know you kind of see the thing you're like oh look at them competing and look at this and i'm like yeah but you no idea what goes on. like there it happens just like it does with everyone else
0: yeah and i'm constantly surprised talking to you professionals it's crazy <laughs> So let's talk about a uh, competition a little bit. I want to get your advice to those because we often get um, feedback from listeners that are like, hey, I've competed in a bunch of these local tournaments and I'm just not getting gold. I'm not having success. And it means a lot to them. Mm-hmm. These They're just not finding success. You know, what, it could be a lot of things, but what, what kind of general advice would you give to these kind of people?
1: Honestly, the thing is, you just kind of have to keep going. You know, you keep training, keep doing it, keep the, the rule set in mind when you're training. But I think it's also important to remember like, Out of the entire division, only one person wins the whole thing. I think a lot of people forget that. They're like, well, I didn't win. Yeah, well, so did literally every other person except for the one person that won. And I, I think that's kind of an easy thing to forget. You're like, especially when you train day-to-day stuff, like, you know, you have a day job, you probably have kids, you have other things going on in life and not that you can't still go out and, you know, win, win a local tournament or, or, or two, but you have to kind of keep in mind that you have other stuff going on in your life. It's not the end all be all.
0: Now, speaking of other things going on, do you have an idea of like your, the long game? For Elizabeth, like what's in your distant future? Do you have a plan? Is it like pro MMA or opening an academy? Or do you even think about these things?
1: Honestly, I think I thought about it more when I was younger. And at this point, like, I'm good. No MMA. Thanks. Like my face. As far as opening a gym, I think if you don't own a gym, you don't understand the kind of stuff that goes into it. Or if you're not like close with someone that owns a gym, and there's a lot that goes into owning a gym. And Mm -hmm. maybe I'll feel differently in, you know, 20 years, because a lot changes in 20 years. But right now, like, it's not a gym isn't something that I want kind of. That in general, but then also just being stuck somewhere. And the thing is, when you first open a gym, you're stuck there for five to 10 years minimum. And that's Mm -hmm. if you're able to then build the gym up and not only build the gym up, bring in other people that can then teach. Let's say you want to just go take a two week vacation right, or a week vacation. You want to not even something like you just want to go somewhere. It doesn't work like that when you own a business in general, but especially a gym, because you're the one you own it. You normally, you teach at it. And even if you have other instructors, for the most part, people are there for you. If you start taking hiatuses and stuff, like, it doesn't generally work super well, unless you have another coach there that people really like. But then you also run into the thing of, let's be real, they're probably not going to want to stay there forever. And if they leave, people are probably going to follow because people go somewhere for the instructor, as Mm -hmm. they should. They should have that bond with the instructor and you know, maybe I'll feel differently in, in 20 years. But I also feel like jujitsu is growing so much that maybe I won't have to go open a gym and do stuff like that. You know, you have stuff where you can go teach seminars, True. you can put out DVD instructionals, and you can make a lot of money from those as well. You know, I'm still only 22. I've, I've got time before I have to start thinking about that. So right now, I'm mm-hmm. basically just like competing seminars and the other side of it, I'm not really thinking about it. because the mo- It's just not something I want.
0: Instructionals, more instructionals.
1: Instructionals are always great because, you know, you constantly get money in with them as long as people are buying them.
0: So you've traveled so much all over the world and to several different academies. You've seen so much in these academies. I'm curious, can you share some of like the pros and cons of, of like not to name any of academies, what you see in these things and things not to do, things that you liked?
1: I think each academy has its own thing and they attract their own type of people. And that's one thing that's nice is I I feel like if every academy was still the same way, you're going to have a ton of people that aren't catered for. And I think that's one thing that you need to be in mind with when you're opening a business or even your student going to try out gyms. Just because they do something that you personally don't like, there's probably somebody that does like it and that's fine. You don't need to train there. And as an academy owner, you don't need to cater to every single person because what happens when you try to cater to every single person is inevitably you cater to no one because everybody wants different things, right? That's why you have, take it basics, stores. How many different stores do you have, right? And mm-hmm. how many people love one store, but hate the other, but then you ask someone else and they feel the opposite. There's a reason... You run things differently and that's fine. I, I think I couldn't sit there and point out each individual thing. And even even if I could, just because I don't like it doesn't mean that it isn't a good thing. Put it this way. As an athlete, I don't generally like classes. There isn't a ton of hard training. Mm-hmm. However, for running a business, that isn't necessarily the best thing because maybe the people there for the most part, they're not going to want super hard training. But at the same time, maybe you don't care about that. Maybe you want a gym that's mostly athletes, then you need mostly hard training. Maybe you want a mix of both. So what I'm looking for when I when I go to a gym is very different. There's a lot of stuff that I would be like, no, I want to do this. I'd want to even where I train at now. However, that's not fair, because the thing is, I'm an athlete, what I want and what I need is, is completely different than what what you necessarily need to to run a business if you want to have a bunch of different types of people there. And so I, I think that's there isn't one way to run something that's great. What do you want to attract? What do you want? And then you you build it off of there to see how you run the academy and what you want. I think that also falls back to part of why I don't want to run an academy because the thing <laughs> is I would want super hard training. I would want the types of things and for the most part, if you're going to have that day-to-day, people aren't going to want to be there mm-hmm. just because most people don't want to get beat up like that every day, mm-hmm. you know, and that that's fine. They don't need to, but as an athlete, what I need and what I want and personality wise as well is, is different. So I don't think I could sit there and be like, cause there's tons of academies that I'm like, Oh yeah, I like that you do this. I like that you do that. But even then it's not necessarily something I would want to be training in every single day.
0: Let's talk about mindset a little bit. Touching upon that as well. Do you have strategies or plans going into competition?
1: Um, I generally think if I want to pull or if I want to stand, hmm. that's about it. That's as far as I go.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So you're not studying every opponent, not that you can. Sometimes you don't know with brackets and things like that.
1: I don't even look at my bracket usually, hmm. unless I just want to see what time I'm going. I think some people like to look, but I think it's a general Mm -hmm. rule, especially like if I have someone that hasn't competed before, let's say I'm coaching someone or just a teammate, whatever. I'll tell them, don't look at your bracket because 90% of the time now you can ask different people. Some of your athletes like to, however, once you get to that point, you know what you fight best with, you know that you're going to fight better if you look at your bracket you know, you're going to fight better if you don't look at your bracket or maybe, you know, it just doesn't matter. But generally, especially for newer people, like don't look at your bracket. All you're going to do is you're going to look that person up and you're going to psych yourself out. You're either going to psych yourself out because you think they're really good or you're going to psych yourself out in the fact that you think they suck. And then you're going to go get beat up because you're not going to approach it in the same way that you should.
0: Elizabeth, your thoughts on the future of jujitsu?
1: Hopefully it's growing to make more money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I think it is It just in the last, I would say like yeah. five to 10 years while I've been in it, it's grown an insane amount. Not, mm-hmm. not only just, you can definitely make way more of a, a profitable living at it, or just a living in general, because especially when I started training, it was one of those things like you're not going to make a living at it okay. for the most part, even if you're a guy, but especially if you're a girl and now that's not the case, at least as mm-hmm. much anymore, not that it still isn't hard. I, I do think it is, but it's also growing in numbers and just in popularity. And I think that that's great.
0: It's almost weird that you don't have like a female matchup on a card nowadays.
1: Yeah, which is, it's good. Um, I still think it has a lot of work to do because i think a lot of times they will kind of just throw one on there and they're like look we have one mm. but it's not really the same thing and i don't necessarily mm-hmm. like that however then you run into the thing where you'll get some where they're like we're just going to do all women's then i'm like i don't that's literally the op you literally basically you're saying well because you want more women on the card we have to do a whole separate thing because i don't mm. want you on the normal event with all mm. the guys mm. just like have some on there and it's going to vary sometimes you're going to have more women and sometimes it's going to be less just like sometimes there's going to be more men and sometimes there's going to be less like any card But it is good to see that, you know, for the most part, there are at least a couple female fights out there.
0: Yeah. Although I got to admit, I really do like the Medusa event. It seems pretty cool. The whole marketing and everything Mm -hmm. around it and the whole thing. What uh, events do you prefer?
1: Honestly, I each thing has its own kind of benefit. I don't. I don't have one that I'm like, I I definitely prefer this one over the other. I think some people, you know, they like one over the other because of rule set. But at the end of the day, there's always a way to game the system. And Mm -hmm. I I think the only time you have a problem with the rule set generally is because either you're not as good at it, or let's say you are, but you have somebody that's gaming the system per se, right? Like they know how to stall it out, whatever. You can do that in any rule set. If Mm -hmm. you want to do that, you're going to do it. So I don't think that there's they're all just different. You just have to approach them differently. And it's one thing that's nice because it kind of keeps it interesting. You're not always doing the exact same thing over and over and over again.
0: Yeah. It's like the whole don't hate the player, hate the game thing. So I was going to ask you, do you Mm -hmm. ever play the rules at all too? You know, Because we all sort of edge toward the edge of the mat. If you're in a particular spot or something like that, something's not going right. Do you look at the rule set and I mean, that become part of your game?
1: Honestly, I can't say that I really do. If we're going out of bounds and let's say I have someone or something, I'm going to drag them back towards the center. (laughs) I can't say that I'm necessarily like, if anything, I've actually had to be told the opposite to be like, hey, like you're being stupid right now. You're on bottom. Stop pushing so much. You're going to end up giving space. You're winning right now. You Mm -hmm. need to like calm down. They need to come to you. So if anything, it's very much been the opposite. It's been the opposite of being like, hey, stupid, play the rules you're not playing it i'm like i don't want to it's boring sitting
0: here um, <laughs> you know it's cuz i've seen you do that where you you're sitting down and by the way you probably have the the most best ability to walk on each butt cheek as if it was a leg cuz you're very <laughs> agile about moving around it's crazy but yeah you would chase these people and then i would see you stop and then wait for them to eventually come to you again
1: it's basically because I'm getting yelled at for doing that most uh, of the
0: time. Uh, okay. Because,
1: it, I mean, as you're doing that, I'm because the thing is, if I'm constantly doing that and they're moving, they're not going to get a stalling call. And if they keep moving around, because technically they're still action, Active, right? yeah. Depends on the exact scenario, but there right, is. Right. However, if I'm sitting there, it's the person on top's job to engage. If from there, there's no action, they're going to get a stalling call. And that's kind of been, you can look back as, as far as I don't have patience. And that's one of the things that I remember getting told that as like a 13 year old Mm. being like, you need to have more patience when you're doing stuff. And I'm like, I don't care. That's always been my biggest thing. And I've honestly had to kind of learn to be like, not game the rules, but almost let the rules work against my opponent as they should be. If they're not engaging instead of me constantly keeping the action, then they're not getting stalling calls when they should be. So that's almost the opposite. Mm
0: hmm. Yeah, you are another one of these people that I'm talking to that has a very attack-orientated game.
1: If you can get the submission, that's kind of always been my thing. I was like, it only takes one submission to to end the whole match. You know, points, you go back and forth, and, and not that it's a bad thing. I think honestly, I've kind of had to learn a little bit to, not that I still don't go for submissions a lot. You watch, I'm always trying to walk away with a submission, but Mm -hmm. I've kind of had to learn to be like, Hey, maybe, you know, get a point here or there sometimes (laughs) instead of just, you know, going for the submission Mm because decisions are never fun. So sometimes you kind of have to, if you can't get the submission, which at at the top level, it can be hard. You kind of have to unfortunately play the points a little bit sometimes just to give you a little bit more security in the match.
0: So Elizabeth, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're up to?
1: So the best place to find me is on Instagram, at ElizabethClayBJJ. That's basically where I post everything and I'm the most active. So if you want to see anything when I'm fighting, anything like that, that's where you need to follow me at.
0: So everyone, thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Adolfo Fronda. Please give us the whole five-star review on the Spotify and the Apple Music and the whole thing. Please watch us again and listen to us again. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. Can't appreciate it enough.
1: Thanks for having me on.